And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, we are just continuing uh, walking through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and we arrive at Hebrews chapter 9. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 9, we are going to be reminded of what worship was like in the Old Covenant or in the Mosaic Covenant before Jesus came and inaugurated the New Covenant. And listen, there's a lot about God we can learn as we look through the Old Covenant regulations for worship, but one of the main things that we learn about our God is that He is holy. Is that He is holy. And we're going to talk more about what that means today, but we'll see in Hebrews 9 just how much better our worship can be when we understand that a holy, holy, holy God desires a relationship with us. And so let's pray, and then we will jump into Hebrews chapter 9. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of the gathering of your people. And Lord, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would be honored and treasured above all else this morning. Father God, we thank you for LifePoint Church and their, their friendship and their support to us. Uh, we pray that you would continue to bless the ministry that's, that's going on there this morning. Uh, we ask that today, as they gather to worship, Lord, that you would bless that time, that you would be treasured above all else. Father God, we thank you for Pastor Dave and, and coming up from, from First Baptist Church of Mitchell, Lord, and we pray that you would uh, continue to guide and lead that ministry there. We ask that you would sustain them, God, and, and uh, refresh them in your word this morning. Father God, as we, as we think back on this past year, and just what a crazy time it's been from one year ago when we first had to cancel church uh, due to COVID. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your protection over us. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the ways that you have, you have guarded us uh, uh, physically as well as mentally from anxiety and fear and things like that. Lord, we thank you for how you've guarded us spiritually. And we thank you for how you've strengthened our church, Lord, through this, this, this year that has been hard and difficult for many people. Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead and guide us. Lord, that you would continue to strengthen uh, the ministry here as we are, Lord, a people that desire to see the heart of Franklin captivated by Christ for generations to come, to plant a church here that beholds God, that builds up the body of Christ, that blesses the city and the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to provide for us what we need just when we need it. Help us trust you along the way. Help us make much of you. And we ask, Lord, that you would give light to this, this passage this morning as we look in Hebrews chapter 9. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to try to get through uh, 10 verses this morning, okay? Hebrews 9, verse 1. God's Word says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. All right, let's stop there. The first covenant, the, or, the, or the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had regulations for worship. In the old covenant, you did not come to God in just whatever way you wanted to come to Him. Okay, and the same is true today because our God does not change. God is still particular in how people approach him. It is not a universalistic call to come to him in whatever way you want. And so first thing, if you're taking notes, first thing that we learn from old covenant worship is that God has a certain way in which we are to approach him. God has a certain way in which we are to approach him. Look back now at verse 2. For a tent was prepared, 
The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called, it is called the holy place. Okay, so he's now describing to us the tabernacle, which think of it as like the mobile hotspot of God's presence that the Israelites would, as they were traveling through the wilderness, they would set up whenever they would set up camp, they would set up this tabernacle. And God had given Moses very detailed instructions for how the tabernacle would be set up. And so uh, we can maybe put that first picture up of the tabernacle structure there, Sarah. And, uh, and so think of it as in three three structures, all right, making up a large rectangle. On the outer portion, you had this exterior courtyard, and then you had the tent, which consisted of the holy place, and then the most holy place, or some have called it, right, the holy of holies. Now, the first thing that's interesting is is what the direction of the gate of the outer court was always to be facing. That gate was to always be facing east, Like whenever they were traveling, they'd be wandering through the wilderness. Whenever they set up shop, they would always have to make sure they knew which way was north, you know, south, east, west. And the gate was always set up facing to the east. Now, why was that significant? Well, think back to Genesis. And we'll have Genesis 3.24 up on the screen. When Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, we see that God, in Genesis 3, verse 24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we're, we're going to see all, all the, these things mentioned in the tabernacle complex. Uh, east, garden, cherubim, and tree of life. We're going to see all these things in this tabernacle complex. But notice that Adam and Eve are sent away from the presence of God and Eden to the east. And the way back into the presence of God was from the east. All right, so the tabernacle always had this eastern-facing gate illustrating humanity coming back into the presence of God. And really, that's a major storyline of the Bible, is how Israel was to be the means by which God would bring the blessings of the Garden of Eden to the entire world. How through the offspring of Abraham... The blessings of Eden were going to come to the entire world and humanity was going to be led back into the presence of God. And so as we look at the elements of this old covenant worship, there's going to be elements where God is reminding his people of Eden. It's going to be a looking back to Eden. But we're also going to see elements in old covenant worship that are looking forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ and how he is the one who will bring humanity back into the presence of God and will complete and fulfill God's command to Adam to go Edenize the world. All right. So second thing we learn from old covenant worship is that we are longing for a second Adam to bring humanity back into the presence of God. All right, we are longing for a second Adam to bring humanity back into the presence of God. The gate on the east is important, all right? So you enter from the east, and maybe Sarah, now let's go to that diagram. Uh, we'll go to the diagram, and you can just leave that up in between verses. So you enter from the east into this outer court, and there you have the bronze altar. 
And this was where a worshiper would come, lay their hands on the head of an animal, symbolizing a transfer of sin to the animal, and then the animal would be sacrificed. Now the bronze altar, this was as far as a non-priest could go. A, a priest could then at certain times use the bronze wash basin and wash themselves and then enter into the tent, into the holy place. So now let's talk about what's in that holy place. In the holy place, first you had the lampstand. And the lampstand was a seven-branched candlestick made out of pure gold. And there's a lot of things made out of gold in the tabernacle, just as there was a lot of gold and precious jewels back in Eden, pointing us to the value and the worth of God and his presence. All right, so we're going to see a lot of gold going on here. And this lampstand was to be continually lit, all right? The light was always to be on as a reminder of God's continual presence, okay? So the lights were always on. The lights never went out. And so you had to have priests going repeatedly in to make sure the wicks and the oils and everything were working well so that the light was always on, a reminder of God's continual presence. And not only was this lampstand producing light, but the gold was stylized with bulbs and flowers, and it made it look like a tree. And it was a reminder of the tree of life, another Garden of Eden reminder for the priests. And then in the holy place, you had the table and the bread of the presence, okay? And so this was a table that consisted of 12 baked cakes representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were placed fresh by the priest every Sabbath morning. And then when the priest came in the next Sabbath to put the new bread in, they were allowed to take and eat the old ones. Now, what's interesting is that in most other ancient religions, people did leave bread for the, for the deity that they were worshiping, but the bread was for the deity. Not so in this case, all right? Our God is much more glorious than that. The bread was supposed to symbolize that God was giving bread to the people. All right, this is why the priests were allowed to eat the bread when they brought in the new fresh bread. They were allowed to eat it because this was God promising that he was going to provide for them. He is the one that gives bread. He does not need bread. God is self-sustaining. He does not need our bread. He is the giver of bread. And so even now, as we're thinking about the holy place and we're thinking about the lights and we're thinking about bread, uh, maybe some of the light bulbs are even starting to go off as you start to think about the, the ministry of Jesus. But, but let's not get there quite yet, all right? Look back at Hebrews uh, 9, verse 3. <clears throat> now behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. Here we see more gold. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. All right, so there was a, a second curtain. There was a curtain to get into the holy place. Now there was a second curtain to get into the most holy place. And this, these were very thick curtains, probably four inches thick. And that word curtain literally means shut off. All right, this is what they were doing. They were shutting off people from getting into these inner places. The holy place was shut off to most people except the priest. And the most holy place was shut off to priests except one time a year, 
and with the high priest. Now, in regards to the altar of incense, there's a bit of confusion. Uh, In the Old Testament, we read that it is actually placed in the outer room, and that's what you'll maybe even see on the diagram there. The altar was in the, the holy place, but in Hebrews, it seems to be saying that it was in the most holy place. And there's a lot you can kind of try to read to figure out what's going on here. But I think it's actually a simple, a simple understanding. I think the KJV actually translate, translates verse 4 a little better. And so we'll have the, the KJV version, verse 4 of it, up on the screen, uh, which translates it not as golden altar, but golden censer. All right, And this is probably best because the altar we know from the Old Testament was in the holy place. However, on the Day of Atonement, which is what the author of Hebrews is really has in mind here, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a censer or a container of incense from the altar. He would then take it into the most holy place, and the incense and the smoke and the cloud would be in the most holy place. All right, Which is that the idea, this is what the author of Hebrews has in mind, was this Day of Atonement. Now, incense, okay, was symbolic of the prayers of the people going up to God, all right? It gave us, gives you this visual of the prayers of the people going up to God, and it was a reminder that God hears the prayers of his people. God hears the prayers of his people. So we're in the most holy place. Incense is going. And then what else do you have in the most holy place? Well, you have the Ark of the Covenant covered in gold once again, okay, and, and Indiana Jones, the only one that knows where that, is it, that, where that is right now, okay? Covered in gold. On the top, you have cherubim, all right? Which, which might remind you of Eden a little bit, having some cherubim there, whose wings were touching one another, forming a symbol of God's throne, right? Representing his sovereign reign. And then you have the lid of the ark, which was called the mercy seat, And then inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had a golden urn holding manna, which was a constant reminder of God's provision for the people in the wilderness, right? He is the one that provided them food and provided for them. You then had Aaron's staff, which we we read in the Old Testament. After Korah's rebellion, God tells Moses to go gather a, a staff from each of the 12 tribes and to place them in his presence And the one that buds will be a sign that that is God's choosing who the the line of priests will be, okay? And so they put all the staffs in God's presence, and the next morning, Aaron's staff has miraculously sprouted with buds and blossoms and ripe almonds. And so Aaron's staff was a reminder to the people and to the rebels that God had chosen the priests. It was a reminder to them of God's sovereign choice. He had chosen who were going to be the priest and what family line and tribe the priests were going to come through. You then in the ark, you also had then the Ten Commandments as a reminder to the people of God's covenant with them and their responsibility to uphold the law. All right, so thank, thank you guys for sticking with me through that. I know there's, there, there's a lot more significance that we can break down those pieces even more. However, Hebrews 9, verse 5, if you look back at it, our author says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. And I'm going to try to be faithful to the text, and we'll keep moving. So verse 6, all right. 
That's not a cop-out, all right? I, I'm, just, I'm just saying. All right, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 9, verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right, so that first room, right, the priests are going into repeatedly to make sure the candles are lit, to make sure once a week that the bread is changed out. But in the most holy place, the holy of holies, only one day a year can the high priest go into it. And that is on the day of atonement. And he better not go in without some blood to offer for his sins and the sins of the people. In fact, on the leading up to the Day of Atonement, about a week before, the high priest would go into quarantine mode, all right? We should understand what that is, all right? He went into quarantine mode so that he wouldn't accidentally touch or be exposed to anything unclean. He would stay up the night before just praying, trying to get his heart ready for this big day. And then on the morning of the Day of Atonement, he would go through a ritual bathing and washing. He would put on fresh white linens. He would then offer a sacrifice to atone for his sins and the sins of his family first. And, this all, and a lot of this was done with people watching, all right? Now, there was a screen there for the bathing part, but this was all done in public this, so that the people could come and watch, all right? All this was happening in the outer court. If we have that diagram up, right? This was all like people could see there was a screen in front of his bathing, but, but everything else, the people came out to watch and they wanted to watch because he was their representative before God. He was representing them before God. And so this is put on display for the people outside of the holy place, outside of the most holy place. And so what's cool to think about is think about the, the, the first part of the Day of Atonement is really symbolizing what the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about Jesus' public and earthly ministry. Right? It was, it was visible to people here on earth. Whereas, think about the book of Hebrews is describing Jesus' heavenly ministry. What goes on behind the curtain? What goes on in the tent, in the holy place, in the most holy place? All right? This is why the book of Hebrews is oftentimes called the fifth gospel. All right? The first four were about Jesus' earthly public ministry. The fifth one is about his heavenly ministry. What's going on behind the curtain? But the first part of the Day of Atonement, it was done publicly. Everyone's watching, and then he goes into the tent. And when he's in the tent, he then fills the golden censer with coals from the altar. He, he goes into the Holy of Holies, uh, allows a cloud of incense to go and cover the mercy seat. He sprinkles the mercy seat with blood. Two goats then are brought. One is sacrificed, and the blood was taken back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then he would lay his hands on the head of the other goat, the scapegoat. He would confess the sins of the people, and then that goat would be sent away into the wilderness, representing the sins of the people being taken away. But why, why go through all that trouble? I mean, it seems like a lot of detail, and there's way even more detail than what I just shared. I tried to give a, a broad a brush overview to you, but like, why did God put in all these instructions and have the priests do all these little things? Like, for what purpose? What's the purpose? 
And that's been uh, one of many of Pastor Kevin's contributions here to this body is he's always asking us, right, what's the purpose? Which is good. We need to do that, right? We don't want to do things just to do things. What's the purpose behind this? What's the purpose of all these little things that in Old Covenant worship they were to do? Well, I think we, we see the purpose when we look back in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus 25 through chapter 30, God's giving his, the instructions to Moses for how to construct the tabernacle and all this. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So, so don't get lost in all the details here, all right? The details are meaningful, they're significant, they help us, but don't get lost in the details and miss the purpose. The purpose that is underlying all this is not primarily that God is harsh or that he is demanding or that he is nitpicky and just has to have it all his, his way. The purpose underlying all this is that he desires to dwell with his people, He desires to dwell with his people, but he is holy. And humanity is sinful. And sinful humanity would be undone in the presence of a holy God. And so those curtains that were shutting him off were not to protect him from us. It was to protect us from him. It was to protect us from the holiness of God. It was gracious of God to send humanity out of the garden, and it is even more gracious for him to provide a way back to him. And these shadows, these shadows of the true heavenly tabernacle are giving us a sense of God's holiness. He desires to dwell with us, but he is holy. He is holy. And this shadow worship, it's giving us a sense of of his holiness, but the prophet Isaiah got a taste of the real thing. And so if you guys have a Bible, turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we're not going to have th- these up on the screen, so I'd encourage you to go to Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah has a vision in the year of King Uzziah's death, which King Uzziah, if we're grading on a curve, was actually not, he was actually a pretty good king. Uh, He reigned for 52 years. However, after he had some success, after he acquired some power and wealth, we start to see pride creep in and cause him to arrogantly enter the temple and do what only the priests were supposed to do. And so we read in 2 Chronicles, which we will have this up on the screen, 2 Chronicles 26.16, It says, speaking of Uzziah, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. We could probably preach a sermon just on that verse. We probably need to at some point. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, even us as Gentiles living in America in 2021, we know no one just waltzes in and burns incense on the altar. That is the job of a priest, not a king. And because God is holy, God strikes Uzziah with leprosy and he's cut off from his people till the day he dies. And so look with me now at Isaiah 6 verse 1. 
In the year that this King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now we're going to eventually go back to Hebrews 9 in a second, so we're not going to break all this down, but I want you to see what's happening in the heavenly temple. The angels are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy. In biblical writing, the repetition of words was a way of emphasizing a point and making sure that you paid attention. Okay, the repetition should make this stand out. For example, when you're reading through the Gospels and Jesus ever says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you hear truly, truly, you better pay attention. All right, now I would say pay attention to all that Jesus is saying, but especially when he says truly, truly. And here we see a triple repetition. It's the only attribute of God that is ever repeated three times. We never see that God is love, 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 mercy, 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 grace, 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 powerful, 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 but we do see he is holy, holy, holy. And this word being repeated three times, not only does it signify the importance of it, but it indicates that God is absolutely holy and he is the source of all holiness. God is absolutely holy and he is the source of all holiness. But now, what does holy mean? We might say it a lot in church. We might sing it a lot in songs. But what does it mean? And admittedly, it's, it's hard to understand or describe because God is the only holy, holy, holy one. Right? We can sometimes start to get our mind around his power and his grace and because we can kind of relate it to, to people and things that we know. But God is the only holy, holy, holy one. So it is hard to describe. It is hard to get our minds around it. But I think the best that we can try to is, is to say, okay, on one hand, this holiness, God being holy, 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 it means that he is pure, clean, and righteous. All right? There's an aspect of that purity and that righteous. But also what it means to be holy means to be set apart, to be unique. It is describing his otherness. God is holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely pure and righteous, and he is absolutely set apart and unique. Now the Bible, when it speaks of holy things, it, it, excuse me, the Bible uses the word holy in a couple different ways. It does speak of God being the holy one, but also speaks of a lot of holy things. And so we have to understand the, the difference between the two. Because you see, when the Bible uses the word holy for people, places, or things, those things are holy by association. Or they have a holiness that has been given to them. But God is the only absolutely holy one, and he is the source of all holiness. But we see this strange thing happen that when God's presence is somewhere, and when he touches something, it receives a holiness by association. For example, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, God said, take your sandals off, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. 
Now, was there anything special or unique about that dirt or sand? Did that dirt or sand have value in and of itself? Well, no, not in and of itself, but the source of holiness was there and had touched it, and therefore it was set apart and unique by association. So when we think about the tabernacle, the most holy place and the holy place, was there anything in and of themselves that made them holy? Like, was it the gold? Was it, was it these things? No, they were holy because the source of holiness was there. God's presence dwelt there and they were made holy by association. And so Isaiah here is in the presence of, of absolute purity, perfection, full of all, set apart, holy one. And let's see his response. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All right, Isaiah knows the ceremonial laws way better than we do. He knows the instructions about the tabernacle and later the temple. He knows about King Uzziah. Isaiah knows the law, and therefore when he sees that he's in the presence of the Holy One, he knows it is game over. He says, woe is me, I am lost, meaning I am undone. I am ruined. I am silenced. I am a dead man. I mean, I don't care how good Isaiah might have been. He needed in that moment, he needed a holiness by association. He needed a holiness outside of himself to be given to him. Flip, flip back to now Hebrews 9. And this will hopefully all start to come together and, and make sense for us. Back in Hebrews 9, you see in the Old Testament, there was an understanding of just how dangerous a holy God was. Right? They had all these curtains and all these checks and all these procedures. There was an understanding of just how holy God was. And so therefore, by us studying some of this old, these old covenant worship regulations, hopefully it will help us grow in an understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness. We must grow in an understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You see, worship under the old covenant it would have continually reminded the priest and the people of their sin and their guilty consciences before God. But church, Jesus has provided us better worship in the new covenant. Because Christ, the substance of all the shadow worship, has now appeared. But we have to understand that even in the new covenant, right, God's holiness has not changed. From Old Covenant to New Covenant, God is still the Holy, Holy, Holy One. His holiness has not changed. He is still absolutely holy, and He is the only source of holiness. But look back at now Hebrews 9, verse 8. It says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. Now that word symbolic, it most, it most literally is translated parable. All right, this is saying that the Levitical system was like a parable for what Christ had come to do in the heavenly places. And as long as the temple still stood, the way into the holy places was not yet opened. 
However, what we see happen and start to happen, right, in the death of Christ, what did we see happen? We saw the curtain be torn from top to bottom. And then in the year 70 AD, we see that the, destruct, that the temple is just completely destroyed, which then marks the complete end of this present old age covenant. Back at verse 8. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Praise God for the time of reformation. All right? You see, in Christ, in Christ and in the new covenant, we are offered better worship. Better worship. Because as we grow in our understanding of God's holiness, and as we grow in our understanding of our sinfulness, we experience the glory of the cross more and more. Right? As that gap widens, we understand the the glory of the personal work of Jesus Christ, that he bridged that gap. You see, our worship is oftentimes so weak because we either have too low a view of God or too high a view of ourselves, and usually both, so that, so that the cross seems just like a little tiny thing. Like, oh yeah, it's, it kind of helped us, but we really weren't that bad, and, and we were you know, pretty much there, but the cross just sort of helped us get us over the finish line. Listen, church, God is holier than you have understood him to be. And the depth of your sin is greater than you thought. But the glory of the cross is more spectacular than you could fathom. The great theologian A.W. Pink, which I've heard it said that uh, real men read pink, uh, but he gave a, a quote that I think is so helpful. He says, What his holiness has required his grace has provided. If you want to understand and appreciate and enjoy and rest in the grace of God, you better first understand his holiness or else his grace is not going to seem that great at all. But church, as we grow in our understanding of his holiness and we grow in our understanding that, that God in his grace has provided what his holiness required, Oh, that's what captivates our hearts for the rest of our lives. And if your worship of God right now is weak, listen, my prayer for you is that we would have better worship. So if you come in this morning and your worship of God is weak, I'm telling you there is better worship to be had when your heart is captivated by the glory of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want to worship God better, you need to grow in your understanding of his holiness. You need to ask the Spirit to reveal the depth of your sinfulness, and you need to watch your heart be captivated by Christ. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for us, that we would be captivated by Christ as we understand his holiness, we understand the depth of our sinfulness, the glory of the cross would just become more and more glorious each and every week that we meet. He offers us better worship in the new covenant because now our hearts are captivated by Christ, the glory of the cross. Our worship is also now better in the new covenant 
because we can come and worship God with a clear and clean conscience. Now, our conscience is a gift, and we're going to see it mentioned a few times in the book of Hebrews, so we're not going to go into detail this morning about the conscience, but our, the conscience is a God-given gift that we all have, and it can, be, it can be seared and damaged by ignoring it. It can also be made oversensitive by packing it full of matters of opinion instead of God's commands. But it is a gift given to us by God over which God is Lord over and therefore we should shape and form our conscience by his word, right? His word should shape and form our conscience. Now when we have a guilty conscience, it is a warning sign that something needs to be done. All right? And so the, the lie of even just modern medicine and maybe psychology is that guilty consciences need to be explained away. They need to be medicated. They need, something needs to happen. Listen, something, like don't silence a guilty conscience. Something needs to be done with a guilty conscience. When you have a guilty conscience, something needs to be done. Something needs to either be made right. Something maybe needs to be confessed and repented of. Or something needs to be informed or reformed by God's word. But you see, in Old Covenant worship, you could never really worship with a clear and clean conscience. Because the Old Covenant just provided a temporary covering for sin, and it needed to be continually repeated. And therefore, in the worship, therefore, the worship of God with a clear and clean conscience was not something that could be enjoyed until Jesus came and inaugurated the New Covenant. And when Jesus came, he took our wrongs, he gave us his rights, and in doing so, he allows us to worship him with a justified and clean conscience. Oh, what grace that is. What his holiness has required, his grace has provided. You see, in John 1, verse 14, we read that the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, or more literally translated, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, church, when Jesus tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory full of grace and truth, we can now see how the earthly tabernacle was pointing us to him. For he is the second Adam who entered Eden's east gate and by doing so brings his people back into the presence of God. He is the true lampstand who gives light to the world and through the sending of his spirit is continually present with us. He is the true bread from heaven who has come down and has been given to his people to sustain them. He is our true high priest who needed to offer no sacrifice for his own sins as he lived a sinless life. And as his flesh was torn, the curtain that shut us off from God was opened. He is the perfect fulfillment of the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's flowering staff points to Christ's fully blossoming priesthood and the manna points to his eternal priestly provisions for his people. And then you remember the mercy seat. You remember the mercy seat, the two angels, cherubim, sitting on each side. Well, after his resurrection in John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 11 through 12. Maybe you've missed this before, 
if you weren't thinking of the mercy seat and the cherubim sitting there, but notice what happens at his resurrection in John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. You see, Christ Jesus was the sacrifice who satisfied the wrath of God and whose blood was sprinkled on the heavenly mercy seat, which is now the throne of grace we can draw near to. He was the true scapegoat who has taken our sins away. Oh, worshiper of God who comes to worship with a guilty conscience. Listen, if that's you, if you've got a guilty conscience this morning, repent of your sin and trust in Christ's work and see that he provides you a clear and clean conscience. He has paid the penalty for your sins and he offers to take your sins away. Oh, church, our holy God desires to dwell with his people I mean, isn't that amazing? He desires to dwell with his people and therefore we must grow in our understanding of his holiness and we must grow in our understanding of the depth of our sinfulness so that the glory of the cross might captivate our hearts and cleanse our conscience and better our worship. We want to see the worship of God increase in this city. That's why we are planting a church and doing what we're doing. We want to see God be glorified in this place. We want to see the worship of him increase. We want to see more and more people regard him as holy. This isn't about getting people into this room. This is about getting people in our community to, to recognize and honor him as holy and enjoy the grace that he has provided us. Church, our God is still holy, and he has one way for us to approach him, and that is through the personal work of Jesus Christ. But I'll confess to you, there are times that I come in here to worship, and the enemy throws things in my face that I have confessed years ago, and I'm tempted to have a guilty conscience over those things. And I'm telling you, a guilty conscience, it, it hinders our worship. And maybe some of you, even this morning, you feel that way. Now listen, let me clarify. If you are right now living in sin, if it's a sin that has not been confessed and repented of, and you're still living in it, hey, we're glad you're here. Let's, let's deal with that, though. Bring that, like, confess that to God when we spend our time in prayer. Grab a brother or sister. Confess that to them right now. Let's pray. Let's walk through this together. Let's expose that sin. Bring it out to the light. Let's turn it over to our priest, Jesus Christ. But church, if it's a sin that's been dealt with, if it's a sin that's been confessed and repented of maybe years ago, we have no need to have a guilty conscience over it. May we remind one another to look to Christ and enjoy the better worship that he has provided us. I've shared this quote before, and I'll, I'll close with it again today from Martin Luther. And if you come in on Sunday mornings and 
a guilty conscience is hindering your worship and it's sin you've already confessed and repented of and turned from, maybe you need to write this down. I'll email it to you, whatever you need. Martin Luther writes, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.